Welcome back to the GU Comics Podcast, where we talk about comics interactional culture and culture's interaction with comic books. Comic books are a great measuring stick when looking at public opinion. Their monthly schedule allows for creators to change content based on political and cultural events. In this episode, I, Simon, and Dr. Ed Salo from Arkansas State University talk about how comic books show us how American popular opinion changed its views on the war in Vietnam, and also how retroactively it came to terms with its fallout. Again, we're joined by Dr. Ed Salo. You may remember Dr. Ed Salo from our previous discussions. We've talked about terrorism, we've talked about American foreign policy, but this time we're going to be talking about Vietnam War and its portrayal in comic books. Hello. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. We always take really deep, heavy subjects when we're talking. Um, so I know, we need to do something fun. Yeah. <laughs> next time, next time it'll be fun, we promise. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I wanted to, you know, talk about, we were looking at different issues and I was thinking... Um, I had been going back looking at some old comic books and especially I had uh, purchased a lot of the collected editions of the NOM, the Marvel comic from the 80s and rereading those. And I was thinking of how Vietnam was portrayed in comics and how that was different than the normal, well, the previous you know, World War II, which was so popular in comics and um, was right at the golden age and how Vietnam was portrayed a lot differently by the mainstream comic book companies. And it really wasn't until the 1980s when U.S. entertainment in general with movies and TV shows started really reexamining Vietnam that comic books started doing the same thing. So I thought that would be an interesting um, topic to discuss. Yeah, I think, yeah, with World War Two in Vietnam, I think they're publicly understood as very, very different wars. Um, World War II, um, I would, you could argue, is regarded as successful. Um, yes. F- and Vietnam is regarded, the Vietnam War is regarded as not so successful. It, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and World War Two, especially in the U.S., and, you know, I would, I'd venture the same way in the UK was, um, well, and then, you know, the Soviet Union at the time and Russia now, you know, it was definitely a, you know, a very popular war. It was a war that um, still brings a lot of pride, celebration, this being the 75th anniversary of like the D-Day landings, um, I guess next year with the 75th anniversary of the end of the war, you know, it was... And, you know, Nazis are somebody that's easy to dislike because they were mm-hmm. so horrible. So, you know, it's it fit really well in the comic book, um, you know, idea, especially those that were developing in the Golden Age. I mean, you know, you had Captain America punching out Hitler. And, you know, so that was really easy. Uh, the Vietnam War is, you know, in American history is a lot more complex. It was a war that we kind of stumbled into in the 50s uh, as part of our containment policy. Uh, if you hear a little growl in the background, I'll uh, <laughs> uh, 
we kind of stumbled in it uh, to try to maintain um, Indochina from falling into the communists. And then, you know, during the early 60s and the Kennedy and the Johnson administration, especially, um, you know, it, doing reading of um, diplomatic um, people involved in that, you know, it's almost like we were the U.S didn't know how to get out, so we just kept getting into it. And no one knew how to win, but we knew we didn't want to lose it. And politically, you didn't want to lose a country like um, we had lost Red China in the 40s. So, it and it was, you know, America was a new superpower um, after World War II, and we had defeated Japan and Germany at the same time, surely. You know, we could defeat this small little you know, country in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, you know, early portrayals of Vietnam, I w- it was interesting. I was, when I was preparing for this, doing some research and, you know, it was ni- 1962 that Dell Comics put out Jungle War Stories. And this was the first presentation of the war in probably any kind of, mainstream entertainment um and you know the early issues were justifying the war it was almost like a propaganda um and they started even that early started showing the need for american forces to be more involved um you know early on we were just sending equipment and advisors but you know even the, this comic in 1962 was showing that for us to effectively win the war, we're going to have to, um, the U.S. is going to have to commit more for, forces to it. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, you know, Dale was not one of the main two, but it was still very um, popular at the time. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people were seeing these and the comics were a lot of what you saw in 1950s war comics, um, Dale didn't really credit their writers or off or artists at the time. So we don't really know who the authors were, but they were, um, you know, they were talking about issues of counterinsurgency. Um, you know, how do you find an enemy that isn't a conventional army, you know, fighting guerrilla tactics, um, Jungle, um, Jungle War Stories, it changed its name, but it only lasted about 14 issues. And by 65, the editors were kind of changing to more of an anti-war um, stance. They, they produced one issue that was interesting because it had a just, well, like how Golden Age comics used to have, a story in the middle um, that was just text, no uh, pictures. They had one that was a letter from Vietnam that was a letter from a brother to his brother back home, basically telling him, you know, do everything you can not to get drafted and don't come over here talking about the horrors of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that was kind of interesting that it changed from being very pro-war and, you know, not being critical in the sense of being critical of 
why we were fighting, but kind of of how we were fighting to by 65, you know, questioning if we should even go. Um, and that's kind of like, there was quite a lot politically happening in um, North yeah. America in 1965. Um, it, yeah, it wasn't a quiet political time frame. You know, civil rights movement is happening. Um, yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of te political tensions. I'm sure there's a, a new voice coming up that maybe wasn't able to get out uh, prior. Well, it was still pretty early on for, mm -hmm. in, there was some questioning of the war in mm -hmm. 65, but I mean, that's still pretty early on mm -hmm. for the mainstream. Um, so, you know, that was, I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, um, well, in the mid sixties, they started running the tales of the green beret comic strip and was collected into issues by Dale. And those were based on, um, the Robin Moore book. Um, Oh, I think it was tales of the green beret that was later made into loosely made into the John Wayne movie, uh, the green berets. Mm -hmm. Robin Moore was a, um, journalist who became infatuated with the U S army special forces, um, went over there. He actually went through some of their training with them and was one of the biggest advocates of special forces for the green berets as they're called because of their headwear. Um, and was one of their big, you know, proponents. Um, his book was a novel because, um, just to change enough so that it was, um, I think just so that he could get it published, but, um, the comic strips, you know, basically celebrated them at the same time. Um, but it, you know, it was, wasn't that popular last, I think five issues. Um, but again, it was, you know, getting that image of the special forces soldier out there who was, you know, the Kennedy administration, when they took over uh, in 61, Kennedy changed the U.S. defense policy from Eisenhower's, um, Eisenhower relied a lot on uh, atomic weapons and the idea of mutual assured destruction. Mm -hmm. And Kennedy wanted broader, more flexible response and one of the things he wanted to focus on was counterinsurgency, fighting guerrilla wars. Uh, he didn't he didn't start the U.S. Army Special Forces, but he was the one that granted them the idea of wearing the Green Berets officially. He did start the Navy SEALs, which you know, we know about today. Um, and there was a lot of this idea of how do we fight insurgents? How do we fight guerrilla wars? And um, it almost became a, you know, I would say if you could take three people or three icons of the Kennedy administration, you know, you'd have the astronaut, the Green Beret and the Peace Corps volunteer. And they all were kind of the same, you know, Americans showing what we could do on a national stage. Mm -hmm. It was interesting, though, um, around the same time it was in um, I found it on a. Um, I think they had gone into public domain, but um, one of those, I think it was the golden age, 
database. One of them had two, the two issues of Super Green Beret, which was, a, you know, I hate to say bad, but it was a really bad comic <laughs> from the mid '60s where um, a kid gets finds a Green Beret that when he puts it on, he's granted superpowers and he's Super Green Beret, and you know, so it takes the idea of the superhero. And moves it into um, the idea of the Army Special Forces Green Beret guy who's fighting in Vietnam and can, you know, use these powers to fight. Um, they weren't really super villains, but, you know, it was a two issue. Um, wasn't that great, but I kind of sometimes make the students read it, especially I made them read it in my Vietnam War class because, you know, it's kind of cheesy and fun. <laughs> yeah, but I think even, sometimes uh, you, need, you need comics like that sometimes just to kind of give you a grounded idea of what it was like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, even DC Comics at the time was using the Green Beret um, in Our Fighting Force in 1966, <laughs> uh, issue 102. They had Captain Hunter, who was a retired Green Beret, who goes back to Vietnam looking for his brother who had been captured. It was a one-off story, but, um, you know, using the idea of the Green Beret to be that hero motif, um, you know, in comics, which I guess kind of in World War II, you know, it was the fighter pilot, and in some ways it was also just the infantrymen, uh, you know, the grunt out there fighting, so. Yeah, when we look back at World War Two, we usually are depicting it on the ground um, in infiltry or from the air. Like, uh, British comics that usually focus on World War II are, it's kind of those two and that's about it. Um, there's no special forces because they didn't exist. <laughs> but um, yeah, this new technology, this new way of, uh, of winning, um, it's interesting that they, they kind of make them superheroes for a little while, if, if nothing else. Yeah, and I mean, and it was, you know, they were, of course, um, you know, dashing. Um, they looked different with their Green Berets. Um, you know, they later on they developed their own kind of image. Um, they were a little more flamboyant because they didn't have to, you know, keep the same kind of um, uniforms. It was kind of, you know, almost the T.E. Lawrence ways because they were fighting they were you know working with the tribal groups and, you know a lot of that romanticism that, uh, especially in the british with lawrence of arabia and others were the same kind of motifs we're seeing here mm -hmm. um you know charlton comics at the same time uh, had started in 46 after world war ii family owned um and they they had several Vietnam stories and because they were not as big as the big two and had always been family owned and, um, you know, a little more, and I don't mean, well, I don't mean politically conservative, but more, I guess, yeah, a little more politically conservative, you know, they were, uh, very anti-communist, very patriotic in their stories. Um, you know, I don't think, you know, some of the stuff we see 
later in the 70s with uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams would have worked at all in Charlton. <laughs> um, but, you know, they had the Green Beret hero. They had they showed men who were doing their duties, um, not questioning what they were fighting for. You know, again, it's really going back to the old uh, World War II model and a model that is in, you know, kind of it's the old motif of the 40s and 50s um, that you would see in any kind of John Wayne type war movie, sort of what, uh, you know, is discussed in the book uh, Born on the Fourth of July, where this is what Americans were brought up to think of, you know, why we fight, we got to fight communists. And a lot of the disillusionists came from that. Um, Charlton comics at the time were only selling about 150,000 um, issues a month, which, you know, today is like, wow, that's awesome. But, you know, at the time that was kind of on the lower end. So they weren't out there as much as, you know, Marvel, DC and everything. But, yeah, when I was researching that and I saw 150,000 and they were like, well, that's a low number. I'm like, yeah, how many comics would kill right now? (laughs) (laughs) Just anybody, anyone would be happy with that. (laughs) I think, yeah, you'd be happy with any of your comics getting 150,000, but times change. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, those are kind of, I don't want to say the... um, the minor um, companies, but the one, you know, the ones we think about most DC and Marvel um, they're they, they did some portrayal of Vietnam, um, but they started quickly getting away from it and almost just ignoring it. Um, you know, of course, probably the most famous is the um, first appearance of Iron Man Um, which I have students read in my comic book class because it's Marvel did such a good job of taking the origin story from the sixties in the movie and then moving it to present day with Tony Stark being, you know, in Afghanistan instead of Vietnam, which I think is also in, you know, we discuss of, if Afghanistan was another Vietnam, but, you know, Tony Stark is the weapons, um, the weapons designer. He's got the, um, the transistors that can use, that can, you know, use magnetism. He's in Vietnam to help to show these weapons so that they can be used to fight communists. Um, you know, they get ambushed, he gets captured. Um, the warlord wants him to build, a weapon, you know, he builds it and it also helps him with the shrapnel in his heart. He defeats the um, communist warlord and his men and we see him walking out of the jungle. You know, it's it's the origin that we're used to, um, but, you know, it's showing the military industrial complex working in Vietnam in, you know, mid early sixties. Um, we're not getting any kind of real, um, you know, it's not critical of the war effort, Mm -hmm. you know, that he's bringing, um, you know, he's bringing a new weapon there. Nobody thinks that that part's bad. Um, 
you know, it's pretty obvious who the bad guys are. The only thing I think is kind of humorous in the story is the fact that when you look at it, Tony's going through the de- uh, going through the jungle, and he has on his dress shoes. <laughs> Not only does he have the suit and the uh, trench coat, but he has on you know wingtip shoes, walking through the desert, uh, walking through the um, jungle. I think in the movie he has on, um, if I remember right, he does have on combat boots with his suit, but. Um, you know, I, that was pointed out actually to me by one of the students when we were <laughs> doing it. I'm like, you're right. That is kind of strange. But um, so, you know, it's, you know, they took what was going on in the you know, the news and they went with it, you know, to build a character. Um, you know, it isn't until, you know, a few years later, um Tells of suspense, uh, 94 in October of uh, 1967, Iron Man returns to Vietnam to test, again, more weapons. And that's when he first faces Titanium Man, who is the um, communist mm-hmm. Iron Man. It, you know, he's fighting another person in an armor. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. So we've got the same kind of... Um, taking the story, going back to where it was. He's still providing munitions, um, and he's fighting a communist enemy who's very similar to him. So who's the only person that could fight that? You know, another Iron Man. So, um, again, it's not very um, it's not very critical of the overall fighting as much as... Um, you know, it's just a setting. Um, two years earlier, we have Captain America going to Vietnam to rescue uh, Tells of Suspense 61. Uh, Cap goes to rescue a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And, you know, a lot of times we don't... I'm pulling that up right now. Um, you know, a lot of times we don't have... Um, A lot of times we don't have, we would think that Cap would be over there fighting and everything, but in this case, he's, um, you know, he's not getting as much involved in Vietnam. And I think it's probably because this underlying political aspect of it, that it's not really that popular of a war and, you know, would Captain America, what side would he really be on? So, um, Again, Cap returns to Vietnam in 1970. By this time, the war, of course, is very unpopular. Um, you know, we've had massive riots. You know, the Nixon, you know, it brought down basically the Johnson administration. Richard Nixon ran for president and won part, you know, mainly because he said he had a policy to get us out of Vietnam. Um, by 1970, you know, Captain America goes to Vietnam to rescue a doctor. Uh, but at this time, it turns out that it's the Mandarin, and this is Cap uh, Captain America 125. It's the Mandarin who had captured the doctor and is using the Vietnamese and the U.S. fighting to destabilize the whole area. So, you know, kind of taking that. 
and using, um, you know, you can view it as kind of a larger political uh, idea of that who benefits from the U.S. fighting in Vietnam. Well, of course, it's the Soviet Union or China, which we kind of thought of at the same time as working together because, you know, it made it was very unpopular in the U.S. Um, it kept, you know, we had to spend a whole lot of money. Made people question America, you know, very similar to what happened in the Soviet Union and Afghanistan in the eighties. It seems like it this. Oh, it seems like the story, like the the way that they've changed, they're no longer. Uh, it's not no longer a setting or uh, a position for the for them just to have a story, but it's Captain America needs to go and save it. Um, and he needs to save people instead of fighting a war. There's people there that are, that need help. Is kind of the way that I feel like the stories are starting to change. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's um, you know, it's using, it's using you know, because Marvel was really always good at using what was kind of going on in the real world. Mm -hmm. The fact that it was set in New York, um, not into Gotham or Metropolis, and there was always, you know, I think that's one of the things that Stan Lee especially saw as making Marvel different was that, you know, it was kind of happening as much as possible in the real world. And if we're, you know, if we're at war in Vietnam, that's going to, you know, it's going to happen. And Iron Man has the connection with the war already because it was part of his origin story. And he sells weapons. Well, where do we need to sell mm -hmm. weapons? And of course, Captain America being the, uh, bastion of patriotism you know there were also other places they could have gone but they didn't um you don't really see nick fury involved in vietnam um you know later on mm -hmm. yeah it'll be kind of hinted that he did um retroactively but not at the time and it's you know again yeah use it as a setting but you know they quickly realized how unpopular the war was and Marvel, you know, in the 60s was kind of doing a lot of promoting to the college-age students. Mm -hmm. And so there probably was a little view of let's not discuss something that might, um, you know, turn readers off. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, maybe we don't know what we want to really say. Um, yeah, it wasn't until, you know, 1970 that it's really getting into discussing the bad aspects of the war. Um, one interesting thing, though, is 1975, Iron Man 78. Uh, it's almost a throwaway story between big story arcs. Um, Tony's sitting there thinking, and he goes back thinking to 1969, which was one of the uh, critical years in Vietnam. Uh, it was the time of the My Lai Massacre. Um, America was really turning against it. So we're th talking six years after, in 1975. Um, Tony's thinking of when he went to Vietnam as Iron Man because they were testing a new laser guided artillery shell which again is kind of 
um, like the film the guided weapons we have now um, and it's used in combat it just um, it destroys this whole Vietnamese village Iron Man's involved in the fight um, when he finally he, he gets hit he has to get a battery to recharge himself and all this stuff and he's attacked by a young boy who he finds that figures out was blinded during the attack and he's just trying to defend himself. You know, he hears something, he picks up a gun, he's, you know, shooting mm-hmm. at it. And Tony realizes that, um, you know, he caused all this. Um, he buries everyone in a mass grave, writes the word why next to it. And, you know, we're told that this is when he decided to change Stark Industries from creating weapons to more peaceful items. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have this as a, you know, as a retcon of a story that happens, you know, supposedly in 69 and this influenced him. But, you know, it's really interesting because it's, you know, he's questioning not only his weapons or what are used for um, the effects of war. Um, you know, he, it's one of those heavy handed attacks uh, because, you know, he buries all the people that his weapon killed and then writes why. So, you know, you don't have to, <laughs> um, you know, DC at the time was still producing, uh, war comics. Uh, but Sergeant rock, the most popular was, you know, pretty much still stuck in world war two, but the writers were starting to discuss more aspects of combat talking about, you know, the demons that of combat, the PTSD, how this affected people. So much like I always tell my students, MASH, the TV show, is Vietnam, but they couldn't put it in Vietnam, so they put it in Korea. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of what you're seeing in Sergeant Rock is issues that are dealt with ideas of what's going on in Vietnam but being not being in Vietnam to being in World War Two, because it's a little more palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you did have some anti-war comics coming out in the '60s and '70s from smaller um, print. Uh, you had Blazing Combat for '65 to '66. Um, it was not a comic book; it was a magazine to kind of get around some of the um, distribution problems. Um, you know, we would call it an underground comic. And it showed, um, you know, the Republic of Vietnam, South Vietnamese forces torturing people. Um, you know, it was very critical of the war. Uh, in 67, Julian Bond's Vietnam, an anti-war comic book, um, it was focusing primarily on African-American experience in Vietnam and how the African-American um, was, they were drafted at a higher um, number. There were more percentage of African-Americans in combat than white Americans. And, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you know, it was at the same time, like we were talking civil rights movement and 
you have a lot of African Americans over there fighting and, of course, dying at a higher percentage. And at the same time, coming back in certain places in the U.S., they couldn't eat at the same restaurant. So, mm-hmm. but these are, you know, smaller, um, you know, we use the term underground comics. So they weren't out in the mainstream. Um, it still gives us an idea of how people uh, were feeling, though. Just um, the mainstream isn't talking about it. But um, if one person's willing to make a comic book, put the effort into making a magazine about it, that must mean that there is an audience for it and that people were thinking it at the same time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was also, um, you know, you know, it was at the same time that uh, musicians were starting to question Vietnam in their uh, songs. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's that anti-war movement and protest isn't just in music books were also with that mm-hmm. it seems like there's no, the... continue Go on. oh no for you sorry yeah it seems like um there's a lot of people like retroactively looking back at um vietnam in the 80s and i i think mash i know it's not a comic book but it's a really good you know, it's a really good example of the film and the TV show that, okay, we can't talk about it directly, but let's talk about it slightly differently. Right. Mm. And that's, um, I mean, when the U.S. got out of Vietnam and Vietnam finally fell and, you know, in the early 70s and mid-70s, the war had such a effect on American culture um, because, you know, it was the first war or that the U.S. had lost, it was people were questioning the government. Um, they were, you know, the Pentagon Papers had kind of showed that the government had lied to the people. We had Watergate. Um, you know, there were there was a lot of trying to find that, figure out what was you know, what was going on. The um, you know one of the interesting ways that Vietnam is portrayed is the idea of the frontier myth in American culture. You know, America, from the colonization, especially English colonization, always was trying to go west uh, to gain new land, um, and you gain that motif of fighting the, well, the Native Americans, which were considered, you know, the savages, and it was you were te- you were going out there to gain this land. You were fighting um, the savages to take it. Um, and this was kind of how Vietnam was also portrayed in popular culture. You know, a lot of the same language that was used in the Indian Wars were still used. Um, you know, it was you know the idea of that it was, you know, you were, you set up your little fort like they did out West and you were out there and, you know, it was called engine country out there. That was the, you know, where the VC and everyone was. Um, Cause a lot of this was, you know, came from the 
Westerns of the 40s and 50s that a lot of these people were brought up. You know, this is the idea of, you know, the Americans can always go out there and defeat this. Mm-hmm. And this motif was gone. Uh, the book Gunfighter Nation by Richard uh, Slotkin, which is um, it's pretty well, it went out in the 90s, um, is really a good discussion of this whole idea of the frontier myth in American culture and how that was done away with, you know, Vietnam had just really crippled it. But you have ways, um, you know, especially in the 70s and early 80s, of rethinking the war, like you were saying, readdressing it, um, you know, the apocalypse now, um, you know, Dear later Hunter. on, <laughs> Dear um, you know, these movies that are trying to, you know, even, um, you know, even movies like The Wild Bunch, which was a Western, but it was Vietnam, mm-hmm. you know, it was the same ideas of counterinsurgency and how these turn bad. Uh, so, yeah. And then with Reagan taking the presidency in 81, you know, it's going back to the whole idea of, well, we didn't, you know, the ideas became well, the military didn't lose Vietnam. The politicians lost it for the military. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, held held them back. They could have done more. Um, the idea of, you know, before the Vietnam veteran was kind of portrayed as, well, the Rambo mm-hmm. in the first movie. Um, you know, he was a very capable fighter, but the war had messed him up. And, you know, that's kind of what we see as the broken Vietnam veteran. In the 80s, um, like we kind of talked about in the G.I. Joe um, podcast, you know, the 80s, there was a redefining of the Vietnam character. You know, the A-Team TV mm-hmm. show. Yep. They were all Vietnam veterans. And none of them showed any sign of PTSD or anything. You know, it was, you know, they were perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Um so at the same time, you know, in mid 1980s, with the success of Platoon and some others, uh, Marvel decided to look at making a Vietnam comic. And I was reading; actually, I'd gotten a book um, yesterday, and I wish I had time to finish it. Uh, that was conversations with Larry Hama, who was the editor of. Um, the nom and writer of GI Joe. And he was saying that, uh, Jim shooter had come to him with art from a GI Joe comic. And it had been colored a little with the word, the nom on it, gave it to him and said, all right, we want a comic like this. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I wonder how that, I have to finish reading the thing because I kind of wonder how that worked out. But um, Larry Hama was the editor. He got Doug Murray, who was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, Larry Hama had served during Vietnam also. And they wanted to do a comic that was within the comic code. So there would be less, they weren't going to be able to do the swearing, the violence some of the other aspects, the drugs that were involved in Vietnam. But 
he said, uh, Hama said that he thought it was important to get the story out there, even if it was not as, well, you know, even though they couldn't do it as graphically as important, it was important to get the story out there for, you know, kids to understand. Um, so they came up with the NOM. It was, you know, wasn't set in a Marvel universe at first. And what they wanted to do was follow a soldier through his tour. Um, in Vietnam, you did a tour of duty, which was one year, and then you were rotated back stateside. Um, Doug Murray said that you know it was important during um, – everybody had their calendar during the war, and they knew how many days they had till they got there. So each issue would be one month in the time of somebody's mm -hmm. tour. So it'd be very realistic. They followed a private Ed Marks, um, 66 to 67. You know, first issue is him flying, you know, leaving home, flying in. Um, it was really interesting. The episode, the issues would have the jargon um, that the soldiers used, you know, whatever kind of, you know, words they used. And then in the back, there'd be a little dictionary to tell you like, okay, the big PX meant the U S um, you know, the world was going back to the U S and these kind of things. And they were trying to make it as realistic as possible within, you know, the media that they have, um, and tell the story as it was going along. Um, they told about the Tet, Offensive in issues 25 and 26. Um, and they were just, you know, trying to make it more of a realistic portrayal that was going on. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, you did have Platoon. You had the show Tour of Duty on CBS that was doing a similar kind of aspect of following an infantry platoon during the war. Um, and you know, you got guys coming in and guys going out as their tours ended. Um, I, my dad served in Vietnam and that was one of the first times that he talked about it was, you know, we would sit down, I think it was on Saturday night and watch the show and, you know, he'd be like, yeah, it wasn't, it. you know, he would complain about stuff, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's. It wasn't the, you know, and because it was on network TV, like the NOM was, you know, a comic book that you could buy at, you know, any store. You didn't have the massive blood. You didn't have all the things that might, like you could in an R-rated movie. So it was a little more um, accessible to, you know, kids and everybody. Um, you know. The NOM did eventually have some major problems. Um, there was a decision later on to take it out of the, um, you know, the main way of getting it distributed and only distributing it through comic book shops and um, subscriptions. So, you know, that cut a lot of the readers because you had to want to go get it. Um, by issue 41, they started introducing it into the Marvel Universe with having characters. And then 67 through 69, um, they moved Frank Castle, the Punisher, in 
to the story. So he was in Vietnam. And yeah, that was one thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, the Punisher originally was a Vietnam veteran whose family, while he was over there, was killed. And that was one of the reasons that he um, started this crazy homicidal attack on um, organized crime. So again, you did have that model of the Vietnam veteran being damaged, not so much by the war as what had happened while he was away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you can, again, blame that to the war, because if he had been home, he would have been able to protect his family. And so, you know, the nom started out really good. Uh, Frank Hama, you know, and G.I. Joe in, in um, the nom was really good at keeping things as grounded as possible in reality of portrayal of military. Um, you know, yeah, you have to kind of go out a little different when you're working with a toy company and you're fighting a terrorist organization. But, you know, you still have that level of realism. And he tried to keep that in the nom, too. And I think that pro it was very popular. I think the first issue of the nom outsold X-Men that month. Yeah, I've re I read there. Yeah, it was selling outselling X Men while it was while at its peak, and that was like yeah, the with, peak of X Men. <laughs> yeah, that's you know that's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so and you know that was you know, and I I'd like to well, like I said, I'm going to read the Larry Hama interviews to see if because I you know I have some questions on why it went certain ways. Um, you know, I thought that, you know, the early issues, like I was saying, I've got the collected ones off comicology and, you know, it still holds up. It's still good stories and good portrayals. The art was spectacular. I thought it really portrayed, um, you know, from movies and um, TV reports and, photos of Vietnam, you know, it was really good art. So, but it, they also were trying to not be as well in the, um, in the interviews, they were saying that they were trying not to be political, which, you know, it's kind of, you've got to be political when you talk about any war, but I think they mean they're not trying to look at the big overarching political aspects. They were looking at just how it was to be an infantry soldier in there. Yeah, that's the, um, I've read, I read a little bit about, um, what, when he's talking about it, that he, he wanted it to be, this is what it was like to be a guy on the ground, um, in the jungle who was affected by malaria, who could have got dysentery, who had to deal with all these things, not just yeah. uh, dealing with the Nixon-Reagan administration. You know, it was about a person. And, you know, and that, yeah, there's people in your platoon you like, there are people you don't like. <laughs> um, the aspects of counterinsurgency were, yeah, you don't know who, who some of your, um, you know, who some of the people are. <laughs> Are they friends? Are they enemies? What are you going to, you know, fight? Um, so, yeah, it was really a good portrayal. The other 
um, interesting, realistic portrayal of Vietnam also happened when you're after Vietnam, uh, the Nam, excuse me, it was 1987. Apple Comics Vietnam Journals by Don Lomax. Lomax would later write the Nam, um, I think it was in the 1990, 91. But um, he, Apple Comics was, you know, not as, was one of the more minor publishers, um, and it was not, you know it wasn't a color comic. It was black and white. Um, it followed um, Scott uh, Niederhammer. I think I'm butchering that. Who was a journalist? Hence his name, Journal, was his um, uh, kind of his nickname, and he was you know we would say embedded now um he was a freelance journalist he was going around vietnam writing stories that he would sell to newspapers um magazines and because this wasn't a comic code um you know book it could be a lot more realistic um and he you know, he could look at the drug use. He looked at ideas of fragging where people would kill their junior officers because they were incompetent. Um, you know, looking at aspects of, you know, can we trust the Vietnamese, um, the corruption in the Vietnamese government? Uh, it was only 16 issues from 87 to 1990. And, you know, it was one of those, I remember picking them up at the comic book shop and they were, you know, not always there, not very regular. So, you know, that was one of the problems that you had was you weren't really sure when they would come out. And I'm sure as a comic book shop owner, that was really hard to buy. So um, that aspect was hard. Uh, he did put out a couple more issues that dealt with, um, the MACV SOG, which were the special operations uh, recons in the North Vietnam, which was a little mini series. But, and it was interesting, um, Don Lomax did, took his character and later moved him to Desert Storm, aged him the proper mm -hmm. amount, and he did the same kind of thing for Desert Storm. You know, hey, you're a journalist, there's a war you got to go do it. And I think it was desert storm journals or, um, I've got them again on digital, but so, you know, it was, again, it was more realistic portrayal of the war. Um, and his was even more questioning of, should we even be here? Um, you know, which you could do not part of a big, you know, Corporation, and you know, to be completely, um, you know, that wasn't the purpose of NOM. They were trying to show more of the, you know, how it affected the mm -hmm. average soldier, which I think they did a really good job for at the beginning, and then, um, you know, kind of went out. Um, you know, during the late '80s, '90s, yeah, Vietnam kind of shows up in other comics, you know, in Watchmen, of course. The comedians in Vietnam, Dr. Manhattan helps us win Vietnam. You know, there's several of the, I think it was like the Fury Max and others where he, um, 
fights in Vietnam, which you expect the head spy in the Marvel universe to be involved in Vietnam in the sixties. Um, yeah, yeah, I always, um, I associate for the most part. Yeah. I always associate, um, Punisher and Nick Fury with Vietnam. Now I think a lot of, there's been a lot of work with those characters retroactively placing them. They probably didn't want to put them in there at the time, but, um, yeah, in 2003, 2012, 2017, um, Garth Ennis famously yeah. probably writes mostly of his stories are war-related or Vietnam-related. And it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're those characters would have been involved in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And you know, it does allow a discussion of different issues um, because you can talk about well, you could talk about, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq issues mm-hmm. and, and Vietnam the same way that Sergeant Rock was talking about those issues mm-hmm. while having them in um, you know, World War Two. Yeah, I find it interesting that Garth Ennis, I think be him being from um, Northern Ireland, maybe has some, um, he has some sort of desire or some sort of connection with uh, the war in Vietnam, with it being a kind of paramilitary organization versus a another organization linked with a very strong military background um you know ira uda and the british empire or the british army apologies yeah i think that um, you know definitely those kind of stories are all intertwined mm-hmm. and i think that a lot of well, you know, and a, a lot of the things that we in the U.S. military were trying to learn from, they were learning from how the British handled counterinsurgency and other parts of the world. So, <laughs> specifically, yeah. certain parts, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Malaysia and, yeah. Yeah, and others. So, yeah, um, but you know, so I think you know overall. Vietnam is um, was really rough for um, comic books to deal with. I've got a quote here. One second, let me find it to my note. What I thought was interesting was uh, in Newsweek magazine in September of 1966, they wrote, uh, "Comic books are having much the same kind of trouble holding reader support for their war that the administration is having rallying support for the real war." war um so you know it was from 62 to 66 yeah you have this almost pro-war just like you would have had in um world war ii and during the cold war but you know comics also were reflecting this move away from supporting the war and questioning it and almost because they were just ignoring the war. Um, you know, it's like, we don't have to talk about this. Let's not talk mm-hmm. about it. Let's have the fantasy world. And, yeah, maybe we can deal with some of these issues, but we don't have to deal with them um, specifically in Vietnam. 
and then you know in the 80s when people were re-examining the war comics started re-examining the war too and trying to discuss not make not making the soldiers heroes like we have with sergeant rock and um, nick fury in world war ii and countless others but more like explaining what it was like and not so much making them heroes as making them relatable i think that that's to me, one of the really important aspects of the NAM, because, yeah, you know, Vietnam Journal was a lot more realistic. It was, um, you know, it dealt with issues that needed to be issued, uh, dealt with, and several of the other comics, too. But to me, the NAM, because it was so popular, because it came from Marvel, because it was... Um, because it had big name um, you know, with Larry Hama, who was the golden boy with how popular uh, G.I. Joe was. It was telling the story um, to a wider audience. And it, yeah, it may have had to be a little less realistic because of the comic code. But you know, it was a starting point for people to understand what was going on. And a point where, you know, kids, especially kids like my age, could then maybe start the dialogue with their fathers or uncles that had served there. And it was a good starting point for that. Yeah, because maybe um, they, that, that big remove as well allows the people who experienced it to be stepped away from it from enough and then younger people to be old enough now to kind of, okay, what happened? They tell like right. instead of going, I need to go and ask my dad or my uncle or a member of my family, um, which could probably be quite traumatic for the person that needs to retell these stories that you can go and experience. Oh, okay. So this may be why um, there was a, you know, this is how people experience this. Um, like, the yeah. like this is what was happening. And it wasn't, you know, it was, um, it was edited enough mm -hmm. that, yeah, it wasn't, you know, as traumatic as watching Apocalypse Now mm -hmm. or one of those where, you know, but you could still, it was a good starting place. Mm -hmm. And it was a good way of going back and, you know, there's no, you know, there's no doubt that American uh, politicians and diplomats and military leaders and political leaders really messed up Vietnam. I mean, it was arguably one of the, um, if not the, you know, top two or three foreign policy blunders in American history. But, you know, at the same time, the individual American soldier who went over there, who was drafted, and those that volunteered also, you know, their story is not always connected with that bigger story. It was like, why did they go fight? Well, because they had been brought up in a victory culture. 
that, you know, America can do no wrong. We can win anything and then get over there and realize hmm, maybe we can't. Um, and, you know, start questioning those aspects. But it was, I mean, you know, at the same time, and it's also interesting that it was being published in the height of the Reagan administration, which was, you know, so trying to go back to um, that idea of the 1950s and the pre-Vietnam questioning. So that was kind of interesting that, but, you know, at the same time, it was also, we weren't questioning the government. We were celebrating the common man, the yes. common soldier who was out there, you know, fighting for what he believed in or fighting to save his buddies or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's, it kind of shows an, a, a very slow change uh, beginning from the way it was portraying World War II comics. And then this massive kind of self-reflection almost, um, you know, like awakening, oh, what have we, we maybe not, this maybe not wasn't as good as we thought it could have been or, um, yeah, so that you've had time to reflect and because I've never, looking back retroactively, I don't know if anyone could argue that, um, there was anything positive, uh, many positive outcomes of, of the Vietnam War, um, from from my the way that I see it being portrayed, it's never gone. Oh, look at this great bit! <laughs> no, mm. I mean it. Um, you know, everyone. It's pretty much accepted in American you know, history is that Vietnam was, you know, a horrible mistake. Then you just have to figure out who you you think is to blame, mm -hmm. but. You know, was it overall American foreign policy? Was it Johnson? Was it Kennedy? You know, so mm -hmm. that you can have those kind of arguments. Uh, why did we lose? Well, we lost because we fought the wrong war. And it's interesting, too, in American military history, you know, there's debates on, well, we should have fought more counterinsurgency. And then there's others that were like, well, we fought too much counterinsurgency. We should have done more. You know, so there's, mm -hmm. you can have all those debates on that. Um, but at the same time realizing, well, we messed up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, I think that the comics of the time are having the trouble of, you know, comics were born in the golden age and then immediately went into World War II where they were used as propaganda. And I think everyone just expected if there was a military action that comics would back and be that arm of propaganda. But they had matured and they realized this isn't, you know, this isn't working. This is not what people want. And then they, you know, had to, you know, in my view, the kind of the major comics just kind of were like, well, we're just not going to deal with this. You know, it's almost like Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. I'm, you know, I'm just not going to deal with this. <laughs> I'm leaving. And it is until, you know, it is until later in the late 70s and 80s that they start 
going back and re-examining it and yeah and then continuing like we were saying uh, with Garth Ennis and everyone discussing these but I still think you know Vietnam's kind of still a taboo interest you know that comics aren't going to talk about and you know we've moved on to other know other things to deal with so mm-hmm. i feel uh, like there's uh, a the, the modern allegory is if if you want to talk about a similar thing um writers are just talking about um the war in iraq or the war in afghanistan or syria they're using those um those locations to tell the similar story as they would have been telling from um uh, from vietnam in the 70s and 80s right mm-hmm. um there's been several good comics coming out about um, Afghanistan and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I mean, Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, one that I thought was that I read recently that was really good. I can't remember when it came out. Um, it was on Comicology and the Unlimited, so it was like you might like this, and I'm like, I might. Let me see, <laughs> read that. And it was, um, I think it was called Rubicon, and it was, you know, the classic. Um, you know, where, um, you know, seven soldiers have to defend this village from, but instead of, you know, the same motif that we've seen in everything from, you know, Japanese movies to Westerns and everything, it was seven Navy SEALs who were having to defend this um, Afghan village against the Taliban. And I mean, it was, you know, a perfect retelling of this, you know, motif and it kind of told the story of you know how counterinsurgency works in afghanistan and you know ideas of poppies and everything so yeah you know telling the stories i think i think we're even though the wars in afghanistan and iraq are very unpopular and again have aspects of a complete um, foreign policy blunder. I think that comics have matured enough that they were quickly setting the stories in those places and discussing issues quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sheriff of Baghdad, um, you know, oh, what was the one with the lions um, that was Pride of Babylon? Pride of Babylon, you know, these that came out very quickly. Um, and, you know, others, the um, the series, I think it was by IDW, The Activity. It's like a 16-issue mm-hmm. um, series that dealt with the U.S. Army Special Forces um, group slash intelligence group, um, The Activity, you know, dealt with a lot of war and terrorism type aspects. Um, you know, so to me, comics maturing, um, writers maturing, and the fact that they could de- they've been dealing with topics that are more um, mature since, you know, the 80s, um, I guess we can go back and thank Watchmen for that too. Um, you know, allows comic writers now to discuss things 
going on um, in our current mm -hmm. geopolitical world in a way that wasn't available in the 60s. Yeah, like there's creators like um, Alesh Kot who are writing about um, things as they happen, as opposed to writers having to have time that needs um, time to reflect on that. Um, the uh, what's it called? Alesh Kot's most one of his recent books, Days of Hate, is talking about the the rise of alt right and how it how that is is a thing that's happening right now. And instead of waiting, they're just writing about it right now, which is quite a it's an interesting take on um, the way comics have have matured that they're willing to be commentators as things happen as opposed to waiting. And, you know, I think that the digital comic and different platforms of how comics are distributed now allows it, allows it's easier for people to get their comic out there. Mm -hmm. you know, even if they just publish a web comic, yeah. um, you know, it's a lot easier than having to go through a publisher that may or may not like that. And, you know, how would that affect their image and everything yeah and you know a lot of these people well like garth ennis um well tom king um, you know now have oh tom king maybe not as much after batman but have a um you know proven record of selling comics mm -hmm. and you know if people you know people are going to read these and so it's not so much of a um you know, a gamble for a company to put a comic out if their names are attached to it. As, you know, someone else who wrote about Afghanistan and then be like, well, I don't know if we can, if people buy this. Well, it's a Garth Ennis comic. Okay. Yeah, you can buy that. <laughs> yeah. It's been a, an interesting tour through the early, like the late 50s, to the early 90s, even in 2017, 2019, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, again, this is, oh, I still love my comic book shop and buying the floppies, you know, it's things like Comicology and others that, you know, putting comics out on digital platforms, you know, as individuals and comment and collected that allow a lot of these older comics to get out there. Um, all the Vietnam journals are, I think they're pretty much all out there on comicology and they were really hard to get as the old, you know, floppies. Now you can just, just download them. <laughs> and I mean, you know, so, yeah. yeah, so that I think really helps to get some of the stuff out there that were harder to get. I tried to find, um, I did try to find the uh, what was it the tales of the green uh, land uh, the green beret that was based on the Robin Moore and they are collected and nobody wants to put those out uh, in in very alone and yeah it was a couple hundred bucks the ones on Amazon so I'm like uh, I might have to just make a trip somewhere and look at them yeah <laughs> for books that you're not sure are any good uh, a couple of hundred pounds or. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, next time I'm, you know, 
next time I'm at one of the, near one of these universities, I'll just stop by their special collections mm-hmm. and do a bunch of copying. But that's <laughs> been a really interesting tour through through Vietnam and comic books. Yeah, I've enjoyed yeah. it. Thanks for uh, having me again. No problem. It's good history lessons. Um, yeah, I like um, I like kind of how how people politically engage with things, and I think comic books are an excellent tool to examine how people have been, how people's opinions change over time. Um, they're so quick at coming out. They're so, um, they can be underground and people, you know, they're counterculture sometimes. So you get, sometimes you get radical ideas in, in comic books. And I, yeah, I think it's, well, this morning when I was prepping for this, I was reading some news and I saw that the um, Mueller report from here in the U.S., it's going to be put out as a graphic novel. Great. <laughs> and someone was joking. They're like, yeah, no one's going to read this, so we have to make it a comic book to get people to read it. <laughs> and I remember that they did the um, 9-11 Commission um, also as a graphic novel several years ago here. So I was like, well, oh, that's kind of interesting mm-hmm. that two government reports that are very important you know, and instead of having people read 400 pages of text, someone's putting it out as a graphic novel, which, you know, of course, then, you know, it's going to be like, well, what, you know, what kind of aspect of this is going to be, um, you know, what kind of political spin are they going to have of this? But I'll buy it and read it. I know. So yeah. it's definitely <laughs> going to be heavily edited. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm like, well, this might actually be a little more interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, well, thank you again for having yeah, me. Yeah, no problem. Enjoyed- it's been great talking Thanks. to you. If you enjoyed this episode, why don't you follow me on Twitter at Dom with a little D, or follow the show at GU Comics or G, where you can tell us how other political movements changed popular culture. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.